I'm here today with Sheila Beckford and Michelle Ladder, authors of a new book coming out this month from Chalice Press called Anti-Racism for Reals, Real Talk with Real Strategies in Real Time for Real Change. Reverend Sheila Beckford is an active anti-racism trainer with national and global audiences. She serves the United Methodist Congregation in the New York Annual Conference. Reverend Michelle Letter is also an active anti-racism trainer with national and global audiences and serves on the ministerial staff at Metropolitan African Methodist Episcopal Church in Washington, D.C. So thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Well, many congratulations on the book. I'm anxious to read it. Um, but before we get into that, uh, maybe each of you could uh, tell us a little bit more about your background and your other work besides the book. Julie, you want to go first? Sure. I am, um, as you mentioned, an elder within the New York Annual Conference in United Methodist Church. I pastor John Wesley United Methodist Church in Brooklyn. Um, I have been active in anti-racism work since I was very young, uh, just being exposed to, um, I, t I guess I'll call it internalized racism within our community and the differences and people recognizing the differences because of our nationality. And so that work began in me very young because I was able to identify it because, of course, I've been experiencing being that my family uh, was not from the, originally from here, from the U.S. And so uh, it's just something I have to say came from my ancestors, that, that passion to unite us as a people. I am very active as far as dancing and, and also teaching young people about, um, about racism and anti-racism. And we, we've started, I started a, an after-school program at one of the churches I was at to actually teach them so they can actually identify it and not become it. You know, not to become racist or internalize racism, but identify it and resist it. So um, that's that's basically where I am, and as much as I'm sharing at this moment. <laughs> okay, sure, sure. Thank you. So, Michelle, how about you? Uh, well, my formal work, uh, or more formal work in anti-racism, started in seminary. Um, I graduated from the Candler School of Theology in 2010, and I served in some leadership roles there. And part of those leadership roles also included chairing some uh, committees on um, coming together across lines of difference, of different kinds, creating fishbowl kind of uh, conversations for the community to come together and model, you know, what different kinds of uh, faithful dialogues would look like from uh, with folks from different perspectives. Um, part of that started uh, my work to focus on racism specifically and anti-racism. And then throughout my PhD work, it just um, gathered steam, let's say. So even though I'd been thinking about you know, what it, what it meant to fight injustice kind of generally. Um, certainly my whiteness allowed for me to 
stand back and not do specific work that had to do with racism. I have never been the direct target of racism and experienced for quite some time the cushion that I have not only been allowed, but taken advantage of to not actively pursue anti-racism work. Um, for the last six years, I guess now, I've worked for the General Commission on Religion and Race, which is the general agency or the global agency within the United Methodist Church set apart to dismantle racism at all levels within the denomination. So there I serve as the director of anti-racism education, and I create um, and facilitate workshops and create resources uh, for lay people and bishops and all sorts of folks to engage in anti-racism work in different ways. I'm currently doing my PhD work at Emory University, and my work focuses on anti-racism preaching. So what does it mean for those of us who are white to preach anti-racist sermons about anti-racism without perpetrating more racism? And then, as you mentioned, I'm, I serve at Metropolitan African Methodist Episcopal Church in D.C., and I'm an ordained elder in the AME Church uh, out of the 2nd Episcopal District. Wow, you both accomplished a lot and have a lot going on, which is really <laughs> wonderful to hear. I'm, I'm very um, impressed and glad to learn about it. Um, so let's get into the book. Um, from what I understand, the way that this came about was the first time that the two of you met each other. So how did that <laughs> happen and how did that turn into a book so, so uh, reverend letter and i met because there was a conference that i attended and it was uh supposed to be a it, it was a conference about an oppressed group right and we were there in support of the oppressed group. And while we were there, the social action uh, Christian group perpetrated uh, racism to a group of us who were Black um, by telling us we were not welcomed in a space that we were actually invited to. And, um, at, and as I said, this is a social action a uh, social action group wow. that's supposed to stand up against oppression, right? Wow. And so uh, Reverend Letta was asked to mediate a meeting between um, me and another person who was targeted. So we met and it was like, we didn't, we didn't have a script prepared. Uh, she she had her her tools together. I had I had just had a testimony what was I was going to share as to what actually took place, and it was as if uh, this was just ordained. <laughs> you know, this this meeting was ordained. Our meeting was ordained, and she stepped in as the mediator, and I was I was actually impressed by her because she did not allow uh, the white woman who was there, who actually was the perpetrator, she did not allow her to uh, cry herself out of the situation. She didn't allow her to use white manipulation to steer the conversation or to move the conversation from what 
we were there, what the purpose of our meeting. And, um, and so I was just impressed by that. And then we, afterwards, we became friends. From that one meeting, we became friends. And uh, I'm going to ask Reverend Letta to share her perspective. But um, when we became friends, it was like, we should write a book. You know, we did a <laughs> workshop together. And the workshop, we didn't practice the workshop either. She came in, I came in with my stuff. She came in with her stuff. We and we knocked it out apart. And we said afterwards, we said, you know, we should write a book. And then we actually wrote the book. <laughs> you all just click. Yes, mm-hmm. immediately. So uh, again, so cool. I think yes, it was just meant to be. So, um, <laughs> Reverend Letta, please share your perspective. Sure. I, I mean, my my perspective mirrors uh, Reverend Beckford, certainly. Oh, this is my dog who's decided to be part of every meeting. Oh, that's fine. I we, apologize. We, we invite all animals. Uh, no problem. <laughs> so I'm introducing Kashmir. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, we, we had not met before. We both had, um, you know, different emphases of why we were there. And the the rhythm and flow, really, of the way that we engaged that particular group um, just felt like we, even though we were coming from different perspectives, even though we had different experiences, and and even um, specifically different anti-racism work that we had done before, somehow the ways that we went about doing anti-racism were similar. One of the things um, I'll just say that impressed me so much about working with Reverend Beckford is her integrity is unimpeachable. She's um, absolutely uh, never afraid (laughs) to speak the truth um, where, when, and how it needs to be spoken. And, And honestly, I think that when doing anti-racism work, that level of integrity and truth-telling and courage is contagious. Um, There may be people that resist it. There may be people that get really mad at it, but it's contagious in the way that if there is any glimpse of the work to be done, if there's any glimpse of mustard seed, let's say, right, of anti-racism work that's ready to happen in those moments, that's the kind of integrity and courage that brings it forward. And Reverend Beckford embodies that. Um, And like she said, afterwards, you know, we had these conversations. She is in charge of um, well, it's called BMCR, Black Methodist for Church. Church Okay. Oh, I got it. Um, So she's uh, the chair of that for the whole New York Annual Conference. And her annual conference really wanted anti-racism training. I was creating a curriculum, piloting a curriculum for G-Corps. And we started talking and said, well, why don't we do these together? Why don't we run it through the New York Annual Conference? And like she said, Every time we got together, there was this rhythm and flow. And what we realized is that part of the reason that that was happening is because we were working out of um, racial positionality, right? She wasn't trying to pretend that she was somebody else. She was coming from her own identity and understanding and perspectives and experiences as a Black Latina woman. And I was coming from my own experiences as a white woman. And because we were talking about similar things, but from our authentic perspectives, we realized that people were able to connect with it even across lines of racial difference. And so when we started talking about the book, we said, hey, why don't 
you know, why don't we write a book that actually comes from our own racialized perspective, a positionality, and then we'll create learning engagements together. And that became the structure of the actual book. Wow. I mean, it really (laughs) speaks to the value of that model, quite frankly, you know, of having, you know, two different, you know, perspectives from different backgrounds for an issue like this, right? That is obviously challenging for a lot of people to deal with. Um, And, you know, I have to say most of the people that I, you know, interview for anti-racism books, it's usually one person writing the book as opposed to this kind of partnership that that you all have, you know, described and implemented. So that's just really um, interesting to see. Um, So how, how did it turn into a book? I mean, literally in terms of getting it published, did, did you all approach Chalice or did Chalice approach you? Or Because I always find it fascinating in terms of how people manage to get books published because it's always, you know, quite an interesting story. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, we approached Chalice. Okay. Mm-hmm. So uh, Michelle had previously submitted an inquiry to Chalice Press and they liked her work. And so she had the information, (laughs) um, Brad Lyons information. And so she said, well, let's do this. Let's just submit, (laughs) let's just submit one. So we did. And it, so she said it was okay. So Michelle says, okay, Sheila, let's not get excited. Um, it, they probably won't answer us for about another month or so. And this is typical uh, within publishing is that, you know, it takes a long time to usually to hear anything back. If you hear anything back. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, well, how long was it, Michelle? I mean, I think the first response was within a week. Yes. And then, and then when they got to the proposal stage, they asked us like right away, can you send us a full proposal? Awesome. Um, so yeah, it moved incredibly fast. <laughs> That's so great Absolutely. to hear. Absolutely. That, that says a lot right there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we were like, oh, and I think the, 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 it was like a matter of about an hour that um, Brad, yeah, Brad returned got back to us and he said, um, well, let me send this over to marketing and see if they'll be interested. And he, he said, that was quick. Um, they said, yes, <laughs> they say, yes. So we were like, Oh, wonderful. You know, so let's get started. And so it just went very, very quickly. And, uh, we were writing within this, I think maybe two months time after. Yeah. Yeah. From our very first conversation, if I remember correctly, our very first like, you know, we should write a book, you know, just kind of offhand comment was last August. Yes. August 2020. And we we were under contract with Chalice Press by November. Yes. In November. Um, Because one of the first conversations we had with them was right after the election. And so it, it moved very, very quickly. So when Reverend Beckford said earlier, it just seemed like it was ordained. It felt like this timeline was, um, it was so much quicker than what you traditionally hear with regards to publishing that we really felt like this was bigger than the both of us. That's just so great to hear. I'm really glad for all of you because uh, that's not typical, um, no. <laughs> you know, in terms of publishing timelines. So the, great to see that uh, this worked out so well. 
So the book is titled, you know, Anti-Racism for Reels. And I mentioned the different reels that are the subtitle. What do those stand for, you know, in terms of um, anti-racism work? Yeah, so um, real talk uh, is the way we approach uh, everything we do, say, and write. Um, rather than just having more talk and more talk and more talk um, that rehashes the same kinds of things or perhaps is so superficial that you might as well be talking about the weather or the local sports team, um, even conversations that sometimes are labeled you know, anti-racism or diversity or something like that, never get to actually what needs to happen to interrupt and dismantle racism. So our real talk is not only the way that we talk about it, but it's also getting to what needs to be talked about. And so real talk with real strategies, I mean, really, um, some people have described this book as a workbook, because throughout the whole book, there are areas where the reader can write, or take notes or make connections. Um, there's a hundred, at least 137 strategies listed in the book wow. um, that are throughout the whole thing. And then at the end, there's an appendix that has all 137 of them with page references. We're, we're really about getting to do anti-racism work right now. So there's, there's no time like the present. As soon as you click leave meeting, as soon as you close the book, as soon as you read about that strategy, you can enact it. And then in real time, because racism happens in real time, and so anti-racism must also happen in real time. So there are interruptions, there are role plays, there are strategies that people can start to use, again, right away to interrupt, uh, interrupt racism in real time. Mm. And then real change, rather than um, focusing on uh, intention uh, rather than focusing on um, even the, the reality that people are coming in from different entry points. The focus and real change is what kind of accountability and what kind of procedures and practices and policies need to be in place in order for anti-racism to actually happen. So they, you know, we talk about it in terms of real as in like actual, like what will actually do it? How do we actually talk about it? How we actually do it? How do we actually do it in real time? And then how do we actually make sure anti-racism happens? Well, I love the practicality of that. Right. You know, and and kind of avoiding the fluff and getting to the substance of it. So uh, that's just a wonderful approach. So in the book, um, you use the term B.I.P.A.L. Uh, to describe people of color. What does that mean? And what you know, why, why did you choose to use that? Well, BIPAL. um that's what we use instead of people of color or BIPOC people. What what happens when we talk about races, right? The race, um, we have white. No, we say white people. But when we talk about people of color, we call them people of color as if we don't have a separate identities. So with the um, with BIPAL, it's, it's, it's separating that, it's separating our identities as Black, Indigenous, Pacific Islanders, Asian, Lat, Latino, Latinx. Okay. Right. So when you say BIPAL now, it's, in the, in, it's going to be in your mind that we are talking about Black people, Indigenous people, Pacific Islanders, Asian, Latino, Latinx people, not 
people of color who no longer have a separate identity. We just place them all together and centers, and then you center whiteness. So the purpose is to decenter whiteness and make sure that every one of us have an identity as if we were white. Okay. Well, thanks for explaining. That's the first time I'd heard that term. You know, the, no, I've heard I created it. Lots of, oh, did you really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. maybe, you know, I hope it catches on. <laughs> Me too. Me too. <laughs> um, we don't need to be lumped in as if we don't have an identity and as if we're not as important as those who are white. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, three years ago, I launched the Publishing in Color conference series, which, you know, is aimed at trying to increase the number of books published by writers of color. And I struggled with what to name it. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I talked with several different, you know, author friends of mine and publishing industry people of mine, you know, that were from different minority groups. And that was the best we could come up with. <laughs> but we didn't think about something like what you're describing. So um, mm-hmm. I'll have to um, think about that further. <laughs> <laughs> in, in, in any event, um, there have been several different books, you know, recently published about anti-racism, especially over the, say, you know, last year and a half or whatever. Um, what do you think makes this one different from the others? I will have to say that um, I'm going to use an example. I'll, I'll start off, Michelle, we'll, we'll jump in. Um, I'm going to use this as an example. After the election, we were having a conversation um, with a person, you know, member of the publishing house at Chalice Press. And a question was asked of us, well, what are you all going to do differently with the book now that the, the election happened? As if anti-race, as if racism disappeared because the election <laughs> happened, you know? And so our, our response was absolutely nothing because our methods are the same. You know, nothing, nothing is changing. We are still uh, the, the object is actually to teach people how to be anti-racist and to to use our method with entry points and 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 logic and not blaming, you know, taking uh, what, what we see in many of the books that we do read is that the blame is shifted from the perpetrator to the target. And what I mean by that is uh, we are considered now the perpetrator, right? The oppressor um, and those who are, who are supportive of white supremacy and who are enacting this, right? And, and causing harm, they are now looked at the, as victims. And in a lot of the books, we, um, those the targets because of their behavior or because of how they try to navigate this um, system of white supremacy they are at fault for their decisions or or the decisions that had to be made because there was no other choice so we have systems that are steeped in white supremacy and so people um bipal people have to navigate this Sometimes they have to, they have to uh, assimilate, let's say they have to assimilate and they have to behave a certain way in order to keep their jobs. 
They have to behave a certain way to be promoted. They have to be, behave a certain way to be accepted. And so then in some of the books, they make it seem as if they have a choice. And their only choice is either do it or be unemployed. So we do not shift the blame on the target or the oppressed. We keep the blame on white supremacy. So that's that's one um, way our book is different. Um, Reverend Letter. Yeah, I think um, I think another way that that this book um, maybe stands out is that the the way that we talk about racism, the way that we talk about even responsibility for anti-racism doesn't shy away um, from certain conversations or certain things that need to be said or certain strategies by using language of, uh, let's say, euphemism, right? So when, when something, when we look at a particular, let's say, expression of racism, or when we look at a particular strategy, or when we look at what does it mean for those of us who are white to take responsibility for doing the work of anti-racism. We really look at how racism and anti-racism functions. And we try to name that very specifically. So let's say in the middle of a workshop, something happens, then we'll, we'll name it for what it is, right? Real time for us happens right in workshops too. So um, for instance, earlier when you said that you had spoken with minorities, uh, we would come in and talk about alternatives to that. So um, if we're talking about BIPOL people, then we would talk about um, persons of the global majority. Because in reality, when we're talking about a statistical minority, we're talking about how that, how that functions within certain areas, specifically white dominant areas, right, or all white areas. And that functions as a part of white segregation, which functions as a part of racism. So the way that we go about naming things for what they are and then guiding people toward alternatives um, reduces the amount of space, literal and figurative, for racism to exist, right? And, and a lot of times there's language around, um, especially within certain groups, the church, uh, certainly, but other groups as well, right? We're concerned about the transformation of ideas or minds or values, or in the church, we might say we're concerned about the transformation of hearts and minds. And we're both ordained people. So we do care about hearts and minds also. But the reality is um, many times people are asking us to come in for 90 minutes of anti-racism training. And in 90 minutes, we're going to offer strategies like these are strategies that will actually dismantle racism. Now, what you do after the two ladies from for reals leaves, <laughs> you know, that's that's totally different. That's something that that each particular group has to take responsibility for. Right. And one of the ways that we talk about how anti-racism can happen is 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 challenging that, you know, we need to transform hearts and minds so that everybody's thinking the same before we can move on. Because really all that does is, is protect and cushion those of us who are white over and over and over again, while BIPOL people are being harmed, even killed because of racism, right? So even challenging something as um, that's sometimes seen as common sense or taken for granted, or of course that's true. You know, we want to challenge people's minds. Of course we do. But if we wait 
um, until we have a full kind of consensus before we move forward with accountability and responsibility, then really what happens is that we're waiting for the most stubborn heart and mind to come around. Mm. All the while, the harm continues. So I think when when our whole approach, not just this book, but the kind of framework that we're using is saying we can normalize the naming of racism for what it is and the and the sharing of actual strategies that people can use right away. No matter what your entry point is, there is a place for you to, for all of us to come in and do anti-racism work right now. There's no, you don't have to wait. You don't have to do a certain number of workshops. You jump in, you do some things, you get better, you keep going. Hmm. Wow. Powerful. So, um, <laughs> If you um, if you had one thing that you wanted people who read this book to take away from it, what would you each say that that would be? Coming to one, that's that's um, <laughs> that's a little difficult. Um, I would have to say entry points. We are can all do anti-racism work right now. We don't have to wait until we are super qualified or what we call super qualified. We don't have to take 50 anti-racism trainings. We don't have to take 10. We don't even have to take one. All you have to do is read this book and understand that there are, we, we are giving you strategies. We are giving you strategies. We're providing you with scripts. We are giving you exercises to practice so that when it does, when racism shows, shows up, you can nip it in the bud. You can interrupt it. You can disrupt it. You can dislodge it. We can dismantle this work together right now. You don't have to wait until you are, um, until you have read every anti-racism book out there. You know, you just, you just need to read this one. And you will you will gain all the strategies you need to combat racism. I, this is woo, this is hard because of course, I was going to say what you said. <laughs> so now now I'm like, hmm, what's another reason? No, um, I think so. Let me let me do it this way. So I'm going to speak kind of specifically for those of us who are white, right? We none of us are not ready to do anti-racism work. Some of us choose not to do it. And I think that the way that our book is set up and the, and the, um, the kind of format that we use and the way that we, um, again, create it in kind of like a workbook uh, format, right? It's a, it's a usable, workable, practical way to start and continue anti-racism work. And I think that for those of us who are white, if we move away from the language and the idea that um, we're just not ready yet, and, and we start flipping that to, are we choosing to do anti-racism work or are we choosing not to do it? Once we make that flip, then we can start to engage in, um, you know, what kind of risks are we taking and, and that kind of thing. And those are, again, also decisions that we have to make, but they're, they're worth it. You know, anti-racism work is worth it. It's critical. It's necessary. It is the work that those of us who are white need to be doing 
um, especially those of us who talk about wanting to be about justice or wanting to um, fight against oppression. And for those of us in the church, for those of us who want to be faithful disciples of Christ, who follow a God who is both of love and of justice and doesn't subsume either one to get to the other. Very cool. So um, I know you're kind of in the midst of just launching this first book. So it's a little bit probably premature for me to ask this, but, you know, do you have any plans that you can talk about for follow-ons? We absolutely do. Um, oh, good. <laughs> so we are, uh, we do have on our list a children's book. Mm. Um, and this is basically an introductory. This book is an introduction to the four reels. And our hope is that we will give a um, each chapter um, its own book. So each four reel will have its own. <laughs> cool. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty exciting. That's a lot of uh, <laughs> runway out there. A lot of opportunity. Well, I'll unfortunately. Just, uh, oh, sorry. I was say, unfortunately, the issue is not likely to go away anytime soon. So, um, <laughs> you know, time-wise, there's probably plenty of room for oh, yeah. multiple books. Yes, that's unfortunate, but yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Michelle, so, did you add something? Oh, I was just going to say quickly, you know, um, Chalice Press and, and uh, For Reels have already been in conversations about creating a facilitator Um either a pamphlet or booklet, um, plus some video aids for facilitators to be able to use the book in um, small group study or um, other venues too. So um, we've been in conversation with Chalice Press from the beginning, thinking of this for reals as a for real series, and then with multiple teaching um, aids to help people be able to really use it and use it right away. Excellent. Well, that's, you know, just adds into the practical nature of what you put together. So uh, Mm -hmm. that's exciting to hear. Um, If if people want to find out more about the book and some of those, you know, other elements that are going to be coming out, I assume that they just go to the page on the Chalice Press website for the book? Or is there somewhere else that would work better? Yes, Chalice Press. uh, You can go on Chalice Press website for the information regarding the book. Mm Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. Well, this is exciting. And, uh, you know, again, I haven't heard of any other books that seem to be this practical um, mm. you know, on the subject. So I'm really glad to see that because there's just been a lot written about, you know, more theory and, you know, how the history behind racism and things like right. that, but not as much as, you know, what do we do about it, which I think is like the crux of the whole matter. So, uh, I'm really glad to see that you guys have tackled that and, and not just in the form of the book too, but in the form of the training that you do. So it's wonderful to hear. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. And, and and best wishes with the rest of the um, book launch. Thank you. We appreciate it. And we thank you for this, for you taking this time to interview us. Yes, absolutely.